last time we spoke about the Japanese counteroffensive against the Marine Beachhead on Bougainville. Things were looking bad for the Japanese before they got even worse. The Japanese had underestimated the amount of Marines on Bougainville, and they sent Major Motsuhiro with his special units to try and hit the Marine left flank, later to join up with the Iwasa detachment. Motsuhiro's men were in for a hell of a surprise when they attacked a larger force than they expected. They took heavy losses before pulling back into the interior of the island to search for Iwase. Meanwhile, Iwase also bit off more than he could chew with a counteroffensive targeting the Piva Trail. In the end, the Marines not only repelled the attacks, but they also greatly expanded their perimeter. We also spoke about the Battle of Chengdu, seeing the forces of Yokoyama crush multiple Chinese armies and unleash chemical and biological warfare in the area. This episode is the Battle of Saddleburg. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. Before we begin, I just want to remind you all, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. I've just released an interview I did with Flashpoint History on the Doolittle right over there. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. Vice Admiral John Henry Towers, the commander of Pacific Air Forces, circled a plan to recapture Wake Island and use it as a springboard to later assault the marshals that were around 500 miles south. Admiral Spruance favored opening a new campaign much farther southeast, where the fleet could count on more land-based air support in the South Pacific. Spruance wanted to launch an offensive into the Gilbert Islands, some 600 miles southeast of the Marshalls. Admiral Nimitz was swayed by this and in turn twisted King's arm, and thus was born Operation Galvanic, the simultaneous capture of the Elise Islands, the Gilbert Islands, and Nauru set for November the 15th. Since his victorious return from the Battle of Midway a year earlier, Admiral Raymond Spruance had privately longed for a major command at sea. But it was an admiral's way to lobby for a job, and he would not be surprised when Nimitz told him one morning in May of 1943, There are going to be some changes in the high command of the fleet. I would like to let you go, but unfortunately, for you I need you here. Spruance replied, Well, the war is an important thing. I personally would like to have another crack at the Japs, but if you need me here, this is where I should be. The next day, the two met again, and Nimitz would say, I have been thinking this over during the night. Spruance, you are lucky. I've decided that I'm going to let you go after all. 
Nimitz reported to King the new assignment during their meeting in San Francisco a month later. On May the 30th, Spruance received the rank of Vice Admiral and shortly after was detached from the Simpac staff and placed in command of the Central Pacific Force, later to be designated the Fifth Fleet. It would be the largest seagoing command in the history of the United States Navy. Spruance would have little more than four months to plan the largest and most complex amphibious operation yet attempted. Naval forces and landing troops would be taken from far-flung parts of the South Pacific and USA mainland. His key commanders had not even yet been identified. Spruance immediately recruited a chief of staff with a lot of experience and initiative. It was his old friend and shipmate, Carl Charles Carl Moore. Moore had been serving in Washington as a member of Admiral King's war planning staff. Spruance asked Moore to select other key staff officers, poaching many from the Naval HQ. Moore would arrive to Pearl Harbor on August the 5th, and he took up a spare bedroom in Nimitz's and Spruance's house atop Makalapa Hill. Now, Spruance was the type of manager that delegated everything possible. He once said, Looking at myself objectively, I think I am a good judge of men. And I know that I tend to be lazy about many things, so I do not try to do anything that I can pass down the line to someone more competent than I am to do it. Moore was perfectly fine with this philosophy. Some would say Spruance was a bit lazy. The man did seem to bore rather easily, and he was a compulsive walker. He often spent days just walking, grabbing staff with him. Moore wrote about such an instance once that occurred a few days after he arrived to Hawaii. Raymond is up to his tricks already, and yesterday took me on an eight-mile hike in the foothills. It was hot and hard pull at times, and particularly so as we carried on lively conversation all the way, which kept me completely winded. On this occasion, Moore tried to talk to Spruance about Operation Galvanic, but Spruance kept changing subjects. A few days later, Moore would write to his wife, Yesterday, Raymond stepped up the pace and the distance, and we covered over 10 miles in three hours. My right leg caught up with my left, but both were wrecked by the time I got back. If he can get me burned to a crisp or crippled from walking, he will be completely happy. Spruance wanted Kelly Turner to command his amphibious fleet. Turner at that point held a year of hard experience in the South Pacific. He was the Navy's preeminent amphibious specialist. Spruance knew the man well, both at sea and at the Naval War College. Spruance told Nimitz in June, I would like to get Admiral Kelly Turner from Admiral Halsey, if I can steal him. However, with the Northern Solomons campaign in high gear, Halsey was not too keen to release Turner. Nimitz sent a personal note to Halsey explaining that he had been ordered to wage a new offensive in the Central Pacific. This means I must have Turner report to me as soon as possible. Unfortunately for Halsey, Turner also took some of their very best staff officers with him. Major General Holland Smith would command the invasion troops, designated the 5th Amphibious Corps, or VAC. Smith was one of the pioneers of amphibious warfare. 
he had persuaded the Navy to adopt Andrew Higgins' shallow draft boats as landing craft and successfully trained several divisions in amphibious operations over at Camps Elliott and Pendleton in California. He fought hard to get combat command in the Pacific and was backed up by Secretary Knox and Admiral King. Nimitz did not know the man well, but Spruance had worked with him in the 1930s when they were both stationed in the Caribbean. Turner and Smith would make quite a combustible pair. Both men were very aggressive, ambitious, and quite overbearing. They were both used to running things without competition. Both were prone to fits of rage, and this earned them the nicknames Terrible Turner and Howling Mad Smith. At Guadalcanal, Turner once offended General Vandegrift by infringing upon his command. This led Spruance to wonder, whether we could get the operation planned out before there was an explosion between them. Smith had met Kelly Turner once in Washington, and he found the Admiral to be precise and courteous, describing him as an exacting schoolmaster, affable in the academic manner. He could be plain ornery. He wasn't called Terrible Turner without reason. For Operation Galvanic, Turner expected to be above Smith in the chain of command. This was consistent with how Operation Watchtower went about. But Smith wanted direct command of all amphibious troops throughout the operation, prior, during, and after the landings, and he wanted to directly report to Spruance. Spruance wanted nothing to do with such arguments, and because of his laissez-faire style, this meant Moore would be acting as referee between Turner and Smith. Here is what Moore had to say of the situation. Alan Smith particularly complained about Kelly Turner. He was a whining, complaining type. He loved to complain. He loved to talk and loved to complain. And he would come and sit on my desk and growl about Turner. All I want to do is kill some Japs. Just give me a rifle. I don't want to be a commanding general. Just give me a rifle. I'll go out there and shoot some Japs. I'm not worried about anything else around here. See that kind of line. I was trying to soothe him down, and Turner would come and complain about the blankety-blank Smith. Couldn't get any cooperation out of him, and so forth. Through these refereed battles, a compromise was met. Turner would be in command of the landing forces until the shore commander went ashore and assumed command of the troops. When Turner was informed, all the troops ashore would fall under the command of the 5th Amphibious Corps and thus report to Smith. This model was accepted by both men and would remain in force throughout the Pacific War. So at this point, it's important to note the U.S. Navy had still not fully recovered from the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor and was still in the process of building the largest fleet the world had ever seen. You have probably heard this phrase many times. World War II would be won through British brains, American brawn, and Russian blood. As said to us at the Tehran Conference of December 1943 by Joseph Stalin, that brawn was simply incredible. From the start of the war until the end of 1943, the United States would commission seven aircraft carriers, the Essex, Lexington, Yorktown, Bunker Hill, Intrepid, Wasp, and Hornet. Of the new Essex class, nine light carriers would be commissioned, the Independence, Princeton, Bella Wood, 
Cowpens, Monterey, Cabot, Langley, Batan, and San Jacinto. Of the new Independence class, there would be 35 escort carriers. No worries, I'm not going to list all of those. There would also be six new battleships, South Dakota, Indiana, Massachusetts, Alabama, Iowa, and the New Jersey. Four new heavy cruisers, the Baltimore, Boston, Canberra, and Quincy. 16 light cruisers, 212 destroyers, 234 destroyer escorts, and 92 submarines. To match this, in the exact same time period, the Japanese commissioned two aircraft carriers, the Junio and Hiyo. One light aircraft carrier, the Rio. Four escort carriers, the Unio, Chio, Kayo, and Shinyo. Two super battleships, the Yamato and Musashi. Four light cruisers, the Agano, Oyodo, Noshiro, Yahagi. 22 destroyers, 15 destroyer escorts, and 61 submarines. Thus, it was absolutely clear the Americans had a significant advantage in naval production. On September the 4th, the 5th Amphibious Corps of Smith were officially established. Smith proceeded to train and control the units assigned to Operation Galvanic, which included Major General Julian Smith's 2nd Marine Division and Major General Ralph Smith's 27th Division. There is a lot of Smiths in this. As the 5th Amphibious Force and Corps were still undergoing organization during the planning phase of the Gilbert's operations, much of the burden for the tactical planning fell initially onto the staffs of the two divisions involved. Julian Smith was informed in August his job was to capture the Tarawa and Apamaba Atolls. Ralph Smith was told he was to invade Nauru, but Holland Smith believed Nauru offered too many problems. Nauru was 390 miles west of the Gilberts and would place strain on available shipping. Simultaneous landings in the two places would further widen the dispersal of the supporting fleet element, a dangerous division of forces in view of the presumed possibility of a Japanese naval counterattack. Finally, the terrain on Nauru would make an amphibious assault and the land fighting extremely costly to be warranted by the strategic advantages to be gained. Now, Mackinato was considered no less suitable than Nairo as an airbase for operations against the Marshals, and was thought to be considerably less well defended. Mackin was also only about 105 miles north of Tarawa, making it possible to concentrate the supporting fleet in one area, and thus avoid the danger of excessive dispersion. So in early October, Spruance and Nimitz made the decision to invade Mackinato instead. Unfortunately, the Americans did not have great intelligence on the Gilberts so they had to do some photographic coverage of Tarawa and the Mackin Atolls between July and October of 1943. The USS Nautilus contributed a lot to the intelligence effort by obtaining hydrographic information, and each conditions for both atolls, such as their surfs, reefs, beaches, lagoon entrance, current data, tidal data, and so forth. It's that unsexy logistical stuff no one talks about. If you want to invade a beach, you have to know about said beach. During September and October, a total of 16 former residents and travelers of the islands were attached to Turner's staff to help out. Many of these were Australian, New Zealanders, Fijian Naval Reserve officers, officials of the Western Pacific High Commission, Australian Army Reserve officers, and enlisted men and a few civilians. Another source of information was given by Lieutenant Colonel James Roosevelt, who had taken part in the raid upon Mackin. For the landings on Mackin, Turner's Task Force 54 and 53 would be assigned the job. 
he would have at his disposal four destroyer transports, one cargo ship, one LSD, and nine LSTs to transport the reinforced 165th Regiment of Colonel Garner Conroy. He would be supported by the 7th Army Defense Battalion, detachments of the 105th Infantry Regiment, 27th Division, units of the 193rd Tank Battalion, 152nd Engineer Battalion, the Coastal Artillery and Anti-Aircraft Batteries of the 98th and 93rd Coastal Artillery Battalions, a platoon from the 5th Amphibious Corps Reconnaissance Company, Sundry Medical, Signal, Ordnance, Quartermaster, and Bomb Disposal Detachments. Their screening force would be four older battleships, four heavy cruisers, 13 destroyers, and three escort carriers. The Tarawa force would be given one destroyer transport, one attack transport, 12 destroyer transports, three AKAs, one LSD, and 12 LSTs under Rear Admiral Harry Hill, screened by three battleships, three heavy cruisers, three light cruisers, 21 destroyers, and five escort carriers. Turner would also make a legendary decision here. He appointed Colonel Erickson, the veteran of the Aleutian Islands campaign, to be the commander of the support aircraft, thus establishing a centralized system of ground control for support aircraft in amphibious operations. Erickson became famous for his innovative tactics, such as using radar-equipped B-17s to guide P-38s to attack Kawanishi flying boats during the Aleutian Islands campaign. He also pioneered low-level bombing raids through the brutal Aleutian weather. Aerial support, both at the tactical and strategic level, would be provided by Rear Admirals Charles Powell's Carrier Task Force 50, formed around six large and five small carriers, and by Rear Admiral John Hoover's shore-based aircraft, consisting of task groups 57.2, 3, and 4. Both forces had to destroy aircraft and air harbor facilities at Tarawa, Mill, Jalut, Macan, and Nairo while simultaneously providing air support. Hoover was also responsible for conducting photographic reconnaissance over the marshals. After the airstrikes and the naval bombardment obliterated the Japanese defenses and installations, Turner planned to assault the beaches with the troops ferried using amphibian tractors, followed up by LCVPS and medium tanks in LCMs. For Tarawa, Ralph Smith's plan was a bit more elaborate and extreme. He was going to attempt something never done before. The amphibious assault of Tarawa had unique problems. There was no immediate means of achieving depth of deployment. The landing forces would initially be pinned down on a long, narrow beach. The island offered basically no room for flank maneuvers, and the aerial and naval bombardments would do little. Ralph assigned a major role to troops of a different regiment than the one that made up the main landing force. Detachments X and Y of the 3rd Battalion, 105th Infantry, and the 193rd Tank Battalion, led by Major Edward T. Brandt, would be the first to land on the west coast of Butaritari, designated Red Beaches. This would also be followed up quickly by the 1st and 3rd Battalions. Over on the right, the 3rd Battalion landing team would land on Red Beach 2 and seize the right half of the divisional beachhead to about 1,600 yards inland. Then they would move right to clear the area around Yukangong Village and Yukangong Point. Over on the left, the 1st Battalion landing team would land on Red Beach 1 to seize the divisional beachhead in its zone of action and move left to capture the area from the north end of Red Beach to Flink Point. 
Meanwhile, the reinforced 2nd Platoon of Company G, 165th Regiment, and 19 Marines of the 4th Platoon of the 5th Amphibious Corps Reconnaissance Company were going to land on Kotabu Island, lying just north of Flink Point. This would secure the seaward approaches into the lagoon. After two hours, while the troops consolidated their beachhead, the Z Detachment of the 105th Regiment led by Captain William Ferns would land on Yellow Beach 2 on the north side of the island between Anchongs and King's Wharves. The detachment would split into two groups, one heading east to clear King's Wharf, the other west to clear Anchongs Wharf. After this, a wave of the 165th Battalion would advance west. Now comparing the two, Julian's plan was a lot more simplistic. It called for the landing at Betio of three battalions, the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, and the 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the 2nd Marines. Colonel David Shoup and Colonel Elmer Hall would lead the three battalions. The 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, would be held in reserve. The Corps Reserve for Tarawa, Mackin, or Apamama would be Colonel Maurice Holmes' 6 Marines. Once the beachhead was secured, troops would advance across the island to the south, seizing the airfield and mopping up enemy positions along the major beaches. To further prepare for Operation Galvanic, Admiral Ponnell led three carriers, the Lexington, Princeton, and Bella Wood, to strike the Gilberts on September the 18th. Supported by 38 Liberators flying out of Canton, Funafuti, and Guadalcanal, Ponnell made six separate and unopposed airstrikes against Tarawa. A ton of fuel and ammunition was destroyed, several buildings were wrecked, and a small freighter was sunk. Attacks on Mackin saw three flying boats lit on fire, with some damage done to shore installations. What was more important than these strikes was the photographic coverage that accompanied them. Zero fighter interception was not found at either, though two Japanese medium bombers were shot down northwest of Mackin. According to the diary of a Japanese laborer, 28 laborers were killed during a strike on Mackin, most likely from a direct bomb hit to a shelter. Beto, they hit a runway, though it would be quickly repaired. Pownell tried to keep the strikes going, but now saw an interception from 18 Zeros, which shot down five of his aircraft. To follow up the raid on the Gilberts, Admiral Montgomery hit Wake with one of the largest carrier strike forces to date. The Essex, Lexington, Yorktown, Calpins, Independence, and Bella Wood, with support from land-based aircraft, hit Wake on October the 5th and 6th. Over 67 Japanese planes were reported to be destroyed in the air and on the ground. Shore installations were also battered heavily. Then beginning on November the 13th, land-based bombers of Admiral Hoover made nightly raids against Tarawa, Makin, and Nauru, and some of the central Marshall Islands as well. Meanwhile, between November the 13th to the 17th, Major General Willis Hale's 7th Air Force's heavy bombers flew 141 bombing sorties against the Gilberts and Marshall Islands. They dropped over 173 tons of bombs, destroying at least five Japanese aircraft and inflicting heavy damage to their facilities and installations. Against the Americans, the Japanese forces in the area initially were that of Rear Admiral Abe Koso's 6th Base Force operating on Kwajalein. Koso commanded the 61st Guard Unit on Kwajalein, the 62nd Guard Unit on Chalut, the 63rd Unit on Tarawa, 64th Unit on Woche, 65th Unit on Wake, 43rd Unit on Nauru, and a detachment of the 63rd Guard Unit at the Ocean Island, with another detachment of the 51st Guard Unit on Makin. 
For the Marshals, he had the 22nd Air Flotilla, consisting of 46 Zeros, 40 Kates, 3 Vals, 5 Flying Boats, and 11 Reconnaissance Aircraft. The raid on Mackin back in 1942 alerted the Japanese to its significance, as they sent the 6th Yokosuka SNLF to help occupy the Gilberts. During the spring of 1943, the IGN created the 3rd Special Base Force of Rear Admiral Shibazaki Keiji, who would defend Tarawa, Makin, Apimama, Nauru, and the Ocean Island. The Sasebo 7th SNLF would be sent to Tarawa, the 2nd Yokosuka SNLF to Nauru. The Japanese went to work on Makin and Tarawa, constructing concrete and log emplacements for guns of all sizes. They used coconut tree logs to build tank barricades, tank pits, laid underwatch obstacles, and dugouts for riflemen and machine gunners. On Mackin, the airbase was expanded and by July of 1943, it was able to take land-based bombers. The Marshalls, Marianas, and Carolines, alongside other islands, would be reinforced in preparation for the expected American offensives. Four new South Sea detachments were formed, and two mobile amphibious brigades that would be used for counter-landings. The Japanese were outmanned and outgunned, but they would make the Americans pay in blood for every inch of land, island by island. However, it is now time for us to travel back to Green Hell, as the Allies were preparing to hit Saddleburg. By November the 9th, the Australians knew the Japanese had two outposts west of Javivanang at Green and the Coconut Ridges, with another strong patrol base at Steeple Tree Hill. Whiten decided to deploy the 224th Battalion on the right to guard the enemy along the Palanco Road. The 248th would take up the center, advancing along the Saddleburg Road, supported by the 1st Tank Battalion, and the 223rd would take the left, advancing along Sisi. Major General Frank Berryman would be appointed the new commander of the 2nd Corps, as General Morrisett was appointed commander of the New Guinea Force. The date for the new offensive was set for November the 17th. A preliminary advance was made by a company along the Saddleburg Road to seize the enemy-held Green Ridge, under the support of heavy machine gun and artillery fire. At 8.20 a.m., two batteries and the company of the 2 and 2nd Machine Gun Battalion fired upon Green Ridge. Captain Isaacson's company of the 248th then moved up, but they were unable to properly follow up the bombardment. The men advanced at a slow rate up the ridge because of thick bamboo. Both the nearby near and far features were strongly defended and would only be captured by 10 and 12.40 p.m. respectfully. The capture of the far feature took the machine gunners 26,000 rounds to keep the enemy heads down for the infantry to storm up their positions. Captain Broxip's company occupied Green Ridge. Isaacson's took White Trunk Tree, lying on the junction of Saddleburg Road and the Sissy Track, by 1.40 p.m. Five men were killed in the process. 18 Japanese died on Green Ridge. At first light on November the 17th, four Matilda tanks led by Major Samuel Horton led the way to the start line, covered under the noise of a deadly rocket barrage. Beginning at 6.30 a.m., rocket-propelled bombs were fired from jeeps. These 30-pound bombs had a maximum range of 1,200 yards. Several of them ended up being duds, but those that did explode had a very lethal effect, killing within a radius of 50 yards. On top of this came artillery and motor bombardments, until Horton's tanks began smashing Coconut Ridge with the infantry close behind them. A company of the 2 and 23rd would find Sissy unoccupied, and they continued north to help defend Green Ridge. 
around 50 yards up the track, the Australians found the first signs of opposition, a heavy machine gun post. The tanks fired blindly at the enemy defenses, mostly pillboxes and foxholes. Despite the terrifying attack, the Japanese held their ground and replied using machine guns, motors, and grenades until the tanks blew them and their defenses to pieces. Halfway to Coconut Ridge, the Matilda tanks had to halt to refill their ammunition. Within all the excitement, the tank crews had run out of their ammunition for their Bessa guns. The Bessas had been firing bursts of around 50 rounds when they could have been firing tens. Three jeeps loaded with ammunition at Javavanang rushed forward as the tanks backed up some 60 yards to protect their approach. All of this was coordinated using walkie-talkies, an absolutely crucial technology of the war. Meanwhile, the 2 and 24th continued north to attack Japanese positions along the Palink Road, and to the south, the 2 and 23rd met resistance halfway to Steeple Tree. At 10.20 a.m., Horton's tanks were resuming their advance, eliminating pockets of resistance one by one. Upon reaching the Kunai Nol on the southern coconuts, two Matilda tanks began to become disabled. Upon seeing the halting tanks, the Japanese unleashed as much firepower as they could, pinning down the infantry alongside their tanks. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Aisley ordered the men to advance on without the tanks. The men stormed the slopes of the Kunai Nol, forced to crawl forward under heavy fire. It became a fierce battle. The Australians were unable to make much ground and they were forced to dig in for the night. Two companies dug in on the slopes of the Kunai Nol, while a third dug in near White Trunk Tree. Despite the terrifying tank attack, the Japanese did not flinch and they fought throughout the day to halt the Australian advance. However, during the night, the Australians unleashed an artillery bombardment forcing the Japanese to abandon the ridge. The next morning, the Australians found the ridge abandoned and they went to work repairing the two disabled tanks so that they could continue their advance. Three more Matildas, wielding two-pounders and three-inch howitzers, were brought up. The 2 and 23rd now advanced towards Maroro, pushing the Japanese up a spur. The tanks advanced again, allowing the Australians to go another 250 yards until they were met again with heavy resistance. The Japanese held very strong positions upon the 2,600-foot Steeple Tree Hill. Their system of defense was to have positions at every possible line of approach near bamboo obstacles. The Japanese would wait to fire until the infantry were just a few yards away to cause maximum damage. Armed with 37mm anti-tank guns, the Japanese did all they could to neutralize the tank menace. By nightfall, the attackers were forced to pull back to Coconut Ridge, and during the night, the Japanese launched counterattacks using grenades and small arms. The next morning at 8am, the Australians resumed their advance. The tanks led the way, but they were met with extremely fast and well-coordinated anti-tank measures. At around 100 yards from the start line, the advance was halted by an anti-tank ditch that was 6 feet wide and 4 feet deep. Major Moody's engineers of the 2 and 13th Field Company were able to dislodge the tanks and soon the tanks were overrunning an 81mm motor position. The tanks ran havoc upon the woodpecker and two light machine gun positions in front of them. Then after another 150 yards, they ran straight into another tank ditch at around 10am. Lieutenant Farquhar's platoon charged past the tanks to give the engineers some room to dislodge them, only to see the tanks hit another ditch when they came forward again. The men fashioned two foulgasses out of four-gallon drums filled with petrol to hit the defenders of one of the slopes later to be named Falgas Corner. A foulgas, by the way, was a projectile weapon typically using a 40-gallon drum with a flammable substance like petrol. 
They would be inclined, and when triggered using an explosive charge, they would shoot a flame going perhaps 10 feet up, 3 feet wide for about 30 yards. So try to picture a really, really big flamethrower burst. This was unleashed on the slope, causing roughly 20 casualties. The Japanese would leave 46 of their dead abandoning the slope when the Australians charged into them. The Japanese then launched a counterattack against the Falgas Corner, leading to more casualties, and they were repelled. To the north, the 2 and 24th launched an attack on a knoll near the summit of a 2,200-foot feature. After an artillery bombardment, Lieutenant Capel's platoon took the unoccupied knoll, but soon the Japanese began encircling them. They fought until 2.30 p.m. when the Australians finally established a secure position on the knoll. Meanwhile, General Katagiri was preparing to send the 79th Regiment to attack the mouth of the Song River. Katagiri was facing a dire supply situation. Although two to three barges came up daily to bring supplies to Kanimi and Lakona, once the supplies landed, they had to be carried over land, and that was really the crux of the problem. The main roads, Kanimi to Ago and Lakona to Oreo, to Saddleburg, and secondary roads leading to Zagaheme and Marikio were all very steep and mountainous. It would take about five days to traverse them. This led the supply line to the front lines to be inconsistent. From the diary entry of an unknown Japanese infantryman at Saddleburg on October the 15th, it read this. I eat potatoes and I live in a hole. I cannot speak in a loud voice. I live the life of a mud rat or a similar creature. At the same time, the 2 and 15th Battalion had sent a diversionary force led by Major Newcomb with orders to, quote, In conjunction with the opening of the attack towards Saddleburg, you are to command a diversionary force, brought in the apparent front of the attack on Saddleburg by simulating a new threat towards Wario. The 2 and 15th set out on November the 17th, and they reached Garabao the next day. They began bombarding it to cause a distraction. This was done to support Whitehead's offensive, while to the east, Brigadier Porter was going to cut the enemy's main supply line by attacking along the coast. Porter sent the 2 and 32nd Battalion to take some high ground at Pabu. On November the 19th, the 2 and 32nd were able to seize Pabu, avoiding any enemy, finding the hill unoccupied. The next morning, the 2 and 32nd began patrolling, and then they found a large number of Japanese 500 yards to their west. That said enemy then found them. Katagiri feared a possible attack against Bonga, so he decided to launch a secondary counteroffensive on November the 21st. Meanwhile, the 2 and 48th resumed their advance, this time without Horton's tanks, who could not traverse past 250 yards because of bamboo obstacles. By 9.30 a.m., the tanks were able to bypass the obstacles, and they caught up with the infantry. At 10 a.m., Whitehead gave the order, Go ahead, as fast as possible. And 50 minutes later, the skirmishing began upon the first enemy positions. The Australians pushed on slowly in a sluggish battle, but they were able to capture Steeple Tree by the late afternoon. At the same time, the 2 and 23rd were trying to drive the enemy away from the southern approaches to Steeple Tree gradually linking up with the 2 and 48th. To the north, the 2 and 24th once again found themselves halted. The Japanese had created a strong bamboo obstacle along the slopes that were difficult to traverse. In an attempt to force the issue, Wooten committed another troop of tanks to assist the 2 and 24th, but it would take a lot of time before the Matildas could climb the 2,200 feature. 
but the Japanese were caught between two enemy forces and they were forced to pull back to Saddleburg during the night. The next morning, the 2 and 48th resumed their advance, while the 2 and 23rd patrolled towards Maroro, meeting no opposition. The troops moved on ahead quickly. At 4.35 p.m., the enemy unleashed machine gun fire at point-blank range upon them. The 2 and 48th tossed motors and their tanks support, who crushed the enemy defenses, rapidly overwhelming them, and then sending them scattering. On November the 22nd, Katagiri finally launched his counterattack, using the bulk of the 79th Regiment against Porter's positions along the Song River. Katagiri also sent the Fuji Detachment, led by Lieutenant Colonel Fuji, to attack Pabu. It just so happened Davies' company had left Pabu to search for the main Japanese supply road, and they came across Horace's hoof in the afternoon. A company-sized force of the Fuji Detachment began their attack, forcing Davies' company back towards Pabu. But that is going to be it for New Guinea today, as we need to travel back over to Bougainville for a bit. Generals Geiger and Turnage ordered a group of naval and marine engineers with construction personnel, led by the Civil Engineer Corps officer, Commander William Painter, to construct some airfields in the interior of the island. They were escorted by units of the 21st Marines, and they used aerial photographs to find an area about three miles inland, roughly one mile beyond the defensive perimeter, where suitable sites were located for two airstrips to be constructed. Unable to expand the perimeter properly because of the swamps around them, Turner's directed the 21st Marines to establish a strong outpost at the junction of east-west on the Numanuma Trails to cover the new airfield site. On November the 13th, the inexperienced 2nd Battalion 21st Marines of Lieutenant Colonel Ustaz Smoke set out E Company in the lead. Unbeknownst to them, Colonel Hemanoe had just realized the tactical value of said junction, and he sent a battalion to occupy Coconut Grove the previous day. The men had managed to establish a solid defensive perimeter. At 11.05, Company E ran right into an ambush. The Japanese unleashed machine gun and motor fire with sniper support from the tree lines. The company's commander sent a report back to Colonel Smoke, and this would be one of many panicked and incoherent reports he would receive from said company. This was the first combat experience for the 2nd Battalion 21st Marines. Smoke rushed forward and established his command post close to the action. He ordered F Company to relieve E Company, who had suffered tremendous casualties. F Company, however, advanced too far to the right and suffered a lot of casualties in the disorganized manner. Unable to get any artillery support, Smoke ordered his units to begin digging in for the night. The next morning, five light tanks of the 1st Battalion 21st Regiment came up to support him. While Smoke organized his forces, an airstrike also hit the Coconut Grove area at 9.05 a.m., consisting of around 20 Avengers carrying 100-pound bombs, using one-second delay fuses. The Japanese fired upon the tanks, managing to disable two of them. And at this point, Smoke ordered the disorganized assault to a halt, and began regrouping his men to attack again. This time they were able to break through the Japanese resistance, and by late afternoon, they established a perimeter around the Coconut Grove. The Marines found 40 dead Japanese, and it was a baptism under fire for the 2nd Battalion's 21st Marines, because it cost them 20 dead and 39 wounded. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. 
And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. You could do me a solid and check out my rather wonky episode on what if Godzilla attacked Japan in 1947. Trust me, that one's a lot of fun. And please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. Operation Galvanic was being prepared and in the meantime, a large number of air raids were hitting numerous places in the Central Pacific. The advance to Saddleburg was getting closer day by day. The boys on Bougainville were finding inhospitable Japanese around every corner. <laughs> 